Well, several months ago on a Friday, I was stuck in a waiting area, and I was kind of sitting off by myself. I had my headphones in and uh, listening to music on my iPhone, and there was a young man who, I'm guessing probably in his late 20s, he sat down next to me. He was wearing a tan uh, military uniform, a very friendly guy from what I could tell. In fact, he kind of motioned something to me, so I took off my, uh, my earbuds and and he introduced himself and said, hey, what kind of music do you like? I said, well, I've got, I don't know, probably 4,000 songs on my, my iPhone. I like all kinds of music. He said, do you have any Uzi Vert? I said, no, I, I don't have any Uzi Vert. He said, do you have any Lil Wayne? I said, no, I, I don't have any Lil Wayne either. He said, what about Lil Yachty? I said, no, I don't, I don't have any, any of those folks. Uh, then he leaned over my shoulder, a slight violation of my private space, my personal space, but he leaned over my shoulder. He was looking at my phone and um, he said, he, I was in the L's, he said, oh, I see you got some Levert, or Levert, not Levert, Lecrae. Levert used to be an R&B artist in the 90s, so that wasn't what I meant to say. He said, I see you've got some Lecrae. I said, yeah, I've got, I probably have every song by Lecrae. In fact, I, was, I went to one of his concerts in Los Angeles as a special guest, so I, I, I love Lecrae. He said, oh, I, I used to love Lecrae myself. He said, can I see your phone? I said, uh, sure, I guess. So I handed him my phone and thought to myself, if he drops it, I've got a screen protector. If he runs, I'm probably still faster. So I thought, it should be okay. So he's looking through my songs, looking through Lecrae songs. Oh, I remember that one. I remember that one. I used to really love Lecrae. I said, well, what happened? Do you, you not like his new stuff as well? Or what, why don't you like him now? He goes, well, it's not really that. He said, I used to be very involved in my church. I used to be so active. I was a youth group leader. I was there on Sunday mornings. I was there on Sunday nights. I was there on Wednesday nights. I was even there on some Thursday nights. I said, well, what happened? He said, well, I started dating this girl and my leaders didn't like it. And so they said that I need, we needed to break up and I refused to do that. So I just left. I never came back. And then he told me that he and his now wife, which happened to be the same, the same young lady, they got married and they'd been separated for three years. And he said his life was nothing like he wanted it to be, nothing at all like he hoped it would be. And then he said, in a moment of real vulnerability, he said, in so many ways, I really miss what I had. I miss God. I said to him, you know, God wants you to come back to him. That God is, is waiting for you. I shared the gospel with him and he just sat there. I got, had every indication he was listening to me. But when he did respond, he just kept coming back to this idea that, look, you don't know me. You don't understand. I'm too far gone. The train has left the station, as it were. It's, I'm beyond hope, he said. I said to him, look, as long as you're alive, you're not too far gone. I must have said it very passionately because he said to me, what are you, some kind of pastor or something? I said, yeah, something like that. But I said, let me, let me pray for you. So I prayed, prayed for him and with him. And what occurred to me as we continued to sit and wait together and talk together was he couldn't get beyond this idea of Jesus as just a judge, as a condemner, as a taskmaster, as someone who just was waiting to punish people for their wrongdoings. He couldn't, he had really had no category for the Jesus of the Gospels who exudes grace for the wanderer, mercy for those who fall short of perfection again and again and again like I do. This morning we're looking at the resurrection of Jesus, and on that morning, uh, some ladies come looking for comfort. That's what they're really looking for. They're, they're trying to find some sense of closure. 
They want to anoint a dead body with perfume so it doesn't reek, but they find something they never expected. In fact, they find a God of the unexpected. And we're going to see three things about God this morning. Look at Mark chapter 16. We're going to cover verses 1 through 8. Let me begin by reading verses 1 through 5. The word of the Lord reads this way. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us for, uh, from, from the entrance to the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Now, the first thing we see in this passage is, and Mark makes this very clear, no one really expected Jesus to be resurrected. In fact, Mark tells us that these women went to the tomb to anoint him, which means to anoint a dead body. That was something, anointing a dead body with fragrances and perfumes was something you did as a, as a gesture of honor. And so they were expecting to find Jesus' dead body on which they could pour perfume. They brought spices, verse, verse 1 says, which, again, what you put on a dead body is an act of devotion. It never crossed the minds of these ladies that Jesus was resurrected. Now, as a side note, skeptics and anti-Christians have been trying for centuries to, to sort of disprove the resurrection, recognizing how important this event actually is, though they've had absolutely no success at it. Uh, but incredibly, Mark here, the, the evangelist makes... No effort to prove anything. He doesn't sort of offer a syllogism or a, sort of an airtight argument in defense of the resurrection. He just states the facts as they were. In fact, if Mark were making this up, he would have never taken the approach that he did. If he were fabricating a resurrection story, he would have never started with the fact that the, re that the risen Christ was discovered the empty tomb was discovered by a group of women. Because in the first century Jewish culture, women had no credibility at all. In fact, it was Celsus who was a philosopher in the second century who was trying to dispute the resurrection. He said, you can't trust the resurrection because the resurrection was first discovered by women. And he said, we all know that women are hysterical. This was his, what he said about women. Now, if you're taking notes, I personally believe women are entirely trustworthy and reliable. But he didn't feel that way. And in fact, in the first century Jewish culture, you didn't trust what a woman said. And so if Mark were trying to concoct some story, if he were making something up, he would never have started this way. But this was no fairy tale, was it? This was no figment of anyone's imagination. This was not, not something that wasn't true that Mark was trying to persuade his readers of. It was so real that he invested little energy in defending it all. This was an historical event, a real event in history that Mark is recording. Now look at what happens next in the story, verses 6 and 7. And he said to them, that being the, the man dressed in white, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. 
But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they go in the tomb, and a man dressed in a white robe, which we know is a, a messenger of God. We know is actually an angel, Matthew tells us. He says to them, look, you've come to the wrong. You're not going to find what you're looking for here. You're not going to find what you're looking for. In fact, he has risen. And then the angel says, go tell the disciples, and look at this, and Peter, that Jesus will go before them to Galilee. Now, this is fascinating. Why would the angel single out Peter? Well, why would he say, go tell the disciples and Peter? Peter was one of the disciples. In fact, he was the best known of the disciples. He was the one who was invited into Jesus' inner circle. No one who ever went to see the Beatles in the 70s said, go, we, we want to go see the Beatles and John Lennon. The two just went together. You, you wouldn't have said that. That was redundant. Why would the angel say, go tell the disciples and Jesus, if you remember anything about Peter, you know he was the most upfront of the disciples. He was the most brash. He was kind of like the, the Conor McGregor of the, the disciples. He was, he was violent. He was ready to fight. He was the, most, he was the loudest. Yet he was always sort of putting his foot in his mouth. Peter was the enforcer. Peter was the most vocal. He was the one who said brazenly, look, even if these other guys deny you, he said, you know you can count on me. I'll die for you if that's what it takes. And yet three times when he's asked if he was one of Jesus' followers on the night of Jesus' death, on the night when Jesus, we could say, needed him the most, what did Peter do? He angrily denied knowing Jesus. In fact, even swearing and invoking a curse upon himself, Peter had left Jesus. We could even argue that Jesus could have rightly written Peter off, but he didn't. The reason the angel singles Peter out and the reason Mark records this detail is to let the readers know that Jesus had not turned his back on Peter, even though Peter had turned his back on Jesus. This is to ensure these ladies and us by extension that despite his meltdown and complete rejection of Jesus, Peter was not regarded as beyond redemption. Here through the grace of Jesus, we get a glimpse into the character of God. Here's the first thing we see about God through this resurrection account. The God of the Bible is a God of second chances and, in fact, the God of another chance. Now, this is good news for me. How many times have we made these promises to God? How many times have we made these commitments to God and failed to keep them? How many times have we said, you know what, I'm going to get back in church. I'm going to be there every week. I'm going to start reading my Bible every day. I'm going to stop yelling at my kids. I'm going to be more patient with them. I'm going to stop complaining about everything. I'm going to try to be more joyful. How many times have we made these commitments to God and we just fail? I'm going to be more loving to my neighbor. I'm going to stop cursing. I'm going to stop looking at that website. I'm going to stop doing those things. And yet over and over and over again, we fail. We keep failing, and yet God doesn't leave us. He doesn't give us the stiff arm. He is constantly extending His forgiveness. In fact, it's fair to say He delights in forgiveness because He is a merciful and loving God. And if we think about it, is there any sin worse than the one that Peter committed? 
Is there any sin worse than betrayal? A couple of years ago, I was asked to serve as a mediator for two men in our community who were in this spat, this, this conflict that had become fairly well known. One of the men had been accused of stealing a large sum of money from the other man in a business transaction. And to be candid, I really didn't want to do this. Because whenever you serve as a mediator, you, you almost invariably ask people to compromise. And so the mediator is the one that everybody's angry with at the end. So I really didn't want to do this, but, but I wanted to see reconciliation take place. So we met and got together one night at my office late in the evening when nobody else was on campus. Both men uh, wanted to, to keep this as private as possible. And I asked the first guy to tell me why he believed that we were in this situation. I said, just tell, why don't you explain to me kind of where we are and, and, and why you think we're in this place? And he was agitated and angry. He had a really loud, booming voice that almost seemed to rattle the windows when he, got, when he was elevated. He argued passionately that he had only taken what he deserved. And then I asked the second man for his take, and he quietly, almost in a whisper, I almost had to lean in to hear him. He looked at the other man and he said, I gave everything for you. You didn't have a penny when I brought you into this partnership. You had nothing. I trained you. I poured my heart into you. I was away from my family for you, all putting all of it into your success, and then you steal from me. And you refused to acknowledge it. His emotion was, was less anger and more heartbreak. This is often the response to those who have been betrayed. And I've done a lot of marriage counseling over the years. And, and I've had the, the, the sad occasion many times to try to counsel a couple when there's been unfaithfulness, there's been infidelity. And I've heard more than once, in fact, many times, many times I've heard the offended parties say, you know, it's not the physical act that I can't seem to get over. It's the betrayal. I just can't seem to get beyond it. This is what Peter did. He betrayed Jesus. This is what all the disciples did. Think about it. After all they had seen and experienced, they'd seen Jesus do these miraculous things. They had listened to him as he as he preached these unbelievable sermons. And they'd seen him cast out demons. They, they were there when he walked on water. And yet at his worst time, at his lowest point, when he needed his disciples the most, humanly speaking, they were gone, paralyzed with fear. In fact, they were afraid that someone might just associate them with Jesus. They abandoned Jesus altogether, but Jesus does not abandon them. Instead, what Mark tells us in essence is Jesus is saying, I have returned for you. The message is not about blame. It's not about human failure, but a promise of Jesus gathering and going before his disciples out of love, bringing them to himself. Those who had failed him terribly, Jesus says, no, I'm right here. I'm here for you. New Testament James Scholar says this, uh, James Edwards says this. This announcement is a remarkable word of grace. The flight of the disciples, even Peter's pitiful denial, have not been the last word. And I love this sentence. It is not given to human beings to speak the last word. The last word belongs to the risen Lord. I am going before you. 
And this is really an awesome picture of what God does for us in salvation. We are sinners, broken, rebellious people, and yet God in Christ, He comes to us. I mean, talk about betrayal. Talk about betrayal. Every single one of us has betrayed God. We have revolted against the God who created us. Now, we've said, no one would ever say this verbally, I don't think, but we've said by our actions, look, I don't really need you. I'll show up when I'm ready. I'll call upon you when I'm in distress, but otherwise I'm doing okay on my own. Sometimes we think, you know, we talk about sin and sometimes we think that, that you know, the greatest sins are, of course, you know, the scandalous variety, sexual sin or murder or theft or some sort of white collar embezzlement, whatever. But maybe, maybe the worst sin of all is our insistence on our independence. Us saying to God by our actions, you know what? I've got this. I've got this. Maybe that's the worst sin of all. We insist on our independence. We don't want God's authority over our lives. But God doesn't abandon us. He offers complete and total forgiveness. He offers us a restored relationship with Him. He pleads with us to come home. And in fact, He goes to great, dare I say, historic lengths to pave the way. Look at verse 6 again. And He, that being the angel, the young man sitting on the right side, said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. There's a statement that has changed history forever. He has risen. The angel said, look, he's not here. In fact, I'll even show you. This is where they laid his body. You can see for yourself. He's not here. He did exactly what he said he would do. He conquered death and hell. It's no exaggeration, again, to say that these words, these three words, describe the single most important event in all of history. That's why we and millions of others today are worshiping Jesus. This is why more books have been written about Jesus than any other person. It's It's why more songs have been written about Jesus than any other person who ever lived. It's why the entire way that we look at time and the history of the world hinges upon this man, B.C., before Christ, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. It's why Time Magazine once called Jesus the man of the millennium. Jesus did what no one else has ever done. He actually really died. His organs shut down. His dead body hung on a tree. He was buried, and then he came back from the dead. He rose again. No one else could ever do that. No one else has ever done that. Only God can raise someone from the dead. And the Scriptures tell us precisely why in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, He was delivered up for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Here's what the Apostle Paul means, and this is our second point this morning. By raising Jesus from the dead, God showed the world that His Son's sacrifice was sufficient. If you want to hear it in more theological terms, we could say it this way. God raised Jesus from the dead to vindicate His Son and to validate our forgiveness. See, one day every single person, every single one of us is going to actually stand before God and give an account of every thought, 
every word and every deed. Everything we've ever done. We will stand before God and there will only be two verdicts. Guilty or not guilty. When we stand before God, it won't be, it can't be. You sinned against me, but not as badly as some of the other folks in your church. It won't be, you disobeyed me, but look, you worked really hard to make it up to me. It won't even be, you rejected my commands, but you went to church every Sunday and you prayed a lot. God's holiness will never allow that. He cannot ignore sin. The verdict is either going to be guilty or not guilty. God will say, either you obeyed me perfectly in every way, or you failed to obey me perfectly and satisfy my standard. And who in this room is willing to stand before God? And I don't know if we have to raise our hand at judgment, but raise our hand and say, you know what? I did it perfectly. I never disobeyed you in any way. So how then can we be forgiven? How can we be justified? That is, how can we be declared not guilty? Well, we can't do anything. We can only receive by faith the benefits of Jesus' cross work and resurrection for us. The other day, my wife and my 13-year-old daughter and I were leaving Teriyaki Madness after we had dinner there and we're pulling out of the parking lot and, and my my girl, little girl said to me, Daddy, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? And this was totally random. I don't know what, what, why she said this to me, what prompted it. Um, but I said, you know, that's, well, first of all, I was glad. I mean, every parent is glad when a child wants to know, you know about the Bible. I said, well, that's, that's really hard, though, because the Bible is this amazing story of God's love, and there's so many great verses. I, I mean, I don't know. It would be really hard to pick one, but I paused, and I said, you know, I guess if I had to pick one, just one verse, it would probably be Romans 4 or 5. It says this, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And I explained to her, look, here's why I say that. If we had to work for it, we would be doomed. If we had to show God that we were good enough to receive His forgiveness, there'd be no hope for all of humanity. If God said, look, I'm going to go part of the way, and all I'm asking you to do is just work your way to me. It's a hopeless scenario. I said, but the beauty of that verse, what that verse tells us is, when we turn from our sins and we trust in Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, God takes away our sin and our guilt, and He gives us the clean slate of Jesus. So when he looks at us, he sees us as perfectly righteous, as those who have never sinned. When we place our faith in Jesus, God declares us not guilty. And no one is beyond the redeeming grace of God in Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you haven't done. It doesn't even matter how far you've gone, how long you've been away. No one is beyond the redeeming grace of God in Christ. The resurrection is proof, we might say, of God's acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice for us. All He calls us to do is to trust in it, to really, truly believe in it. As I shared with my daughter, my favorite verse, uh, like the very distracted father that I am, 
I started talking about something else. I just changed the subjects. Subject, and I, and I heard kind of out of the back seat a voice of mockery, a voice of a 13-year-old that said something like this. Oh, Julia, well, thanks for sharing your, uh, thanks for asking. What is your favorite verse? She was, she was communicating to me in, in you know, the way that a teenager, teenager does. Look, you didn't ask me about my favorite verse. So I said, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. I, I, I just, you know, your daddy's easily distracted. And so I, I forgot to ask you, but what is your favorite verse? And she said, without even blinking, she said, my favorite verse is Luke 23, 43. Now, I'd like to tell you that I have the whole Bible memorized, but I don't. I said, uh, well, okay, what, what does that say? She said, it says this, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I said, why is that, why is that your favorite verse? She said, well, the guy that Jesus said that to was the criminal on the cross who could have been a murderer, a thief. We don't know what he did, but he surely did some really bad stuff. And yet he was instantly forgiven when he turned to Jesus. Whatever he did would not keep him out of heaven. Jesus forgave him. Now, she didn't say it like a preacher, that, like I just said it. But she said, she said, I love that verse because we don't know what he did, but it was probably really, really bad, Daddy. And, and yet here's the thing, like he's still going to be with Jesus. It wasn't enough to keep him from being with Jesus. Sometimes children see things better than we do, don't they? But this is what the resurrection means. The resurrection is the announcement that the sin that held us captive has been defeated. We're no longer slaves to sin. Jackie Hill Perry is a poet and author who for a good portion of her life struggled with same-sex attraction and actually was in a same-sex relationship until God brought her to faith in Jesus. And she said that after her conversion, you know, what she noticed was she, she still struggled with lust and she still struggled with sin, which you know, naturally... And she will probably struggle with lust maybe her whole life, like we struggle with sin. But she said there was one particular evening when things, she was just actually at a really low point, and she felt like her sin was something she had absolutely no chance against. It was necessarily going to devour her, and she was just broken and hopeless. So she reached out to a Christian friend of hers, a young lady who had been mentoring and discipling her, and this lady said to her, when Jesus died and rose, he defeated the power of sin and death. Now that resurrection power is at work in you, literally. You don't have to give in. Every single time you're tempted to give in, just remember the reality that Jesus defeated sin already. You're not a slave to it. You are free. You just have to believe it, rest in it, defend or depend by prayer on that power. Now, we're still going to struggle with sin. We're still going to wrestle with sin. We're, we're still going to give in to temptation. But the resurrection means we're no longer slaves to it. It's no longer our master. The resurrection is the announcement that the curse that rested upon us has been lifted. It didn't just disappear into thin air. The curse that rested on us was actually placed on Jesus on the cross. The resurrection is the announcement that death, which threatened to undo us at any moment, has been overcome. It doesn't mean that we don't die physically, but it does mean that death is not the end. The resurrection tells us that God is restoring all things. He's going to renew everything that's broken. He's going to fix in a thousand ways everything that's been wrecked by sin. 
and not even the power of hell can stop him. The resurrection means, as I said before, that regardless of what I've done, by faith in Jesus Christ, God sees me as perfect in his eyes. And this, frankly, changes everything. It changes how I am as a father. It changes how I am as a husband. It changes how I am as a pastor. It changes how I am as a neighbor. Because what this means is that my acceptance before God and indeed my own worth, my worth and value are not tied up in how I perform every day, but in how God sees me. And God sees me as righteous because of Jesus. So this means that um, my worth is not tied up in my relationship status. You know, for some people, uh, especially those who are single and they're longing to date or those who have been abandoned by a husband or wife, it's so easy to think that my value is actually tied up in my relationship status. But that's not what the resurrection informs us. Your, your value, your worth is tied up in the fact that God loved you so much, He went all the way to earth to save you, and He demonstrated that that sacrifice was enough by raising His Son from the dead. It means that my value is not rooted in my performance review at work. It means my value is not tied into my grades. It means my worth is not dependent on how I'm doing as a parent. I'm super grateful for my kids. I love my kids, and, and they bring me so much joy and delight. But they're not perfect, just like I'm not perfect. And if I have a day when my kids don't do what I want them to do, it doesn't impact, it doesn't affect my value before God. My worth is not tied up even in how I'm doing as a pastor. You know, we had two services this morning, and a lot of people the first service, and a lot of people the second service. But you know what? If we schedule two services, and it was just me and Janine, it doesn't mean that I'm not valuable before, before God. It doesn't mean I'm not worth something before God. My worth is not tied into my performance. These things don't determine my value. What gives me worth is that I am loved by God. When I understand the lengths to which God went to save me, again, sending His Son to die, raising that Son from the dead, when I understand the security of God's love for me in Christ, then I can also trust that He has good things in store for me still. Now, there's one final revelation about God we see in this passage. Look at verse 8. And they went out and fled the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. In those two verses alone, Mark includes, in one verse alone, really, in five emotive responses from these women. They fled, they trembled, they were seized, they were astonished, and they were afraid. Now we read that, we say, how could they not have been? They came expecting to see a dead body. They came expecting to see the dead body of their Savior so they could anoint His body with, with perfume and oil, and the body wasn't there. How could they not be afraid? The angel tells them, though, don't be alarmed. He's not there. He's alive. Not surprisingly, they are awestruck and stunned, which leads us to our third point this morning. The resurrection power of God always elicits astonishment, awe, and comfort among those whose hearts are receptive. You say, it doesn't look like these women were too comforted. They seem crippled with fear. Well, they were stunned. The, word, the same word for afraid in verse 8 is used elsewhere to mean awestruck with reverence. You might say it this way. 
they were blown away. They couldn't believe what they saw. Their greatest hopes had been realized. In fact, what they dared not even hope had come true. Their Lord and Savior had delivered on His promise. He had defeated death and hell. And what these women saw, what they experienced would change them forever. If we had time to continue in this chapter, we would see that they spent their days from that point on telling others about the risen Savior, reveling in the reality of the risen Lord. But it didn't have to go that way, did it? They could have rationalized. They could have tried to explain away what they saw. They could have said, well, the body's not there, but look, there could be any number of explanations here. In fact, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, who's written some some great uh, both fiction and nonfiction works, he says this, The genuine realist, if he's an unbeliever, will always find strength and ability to disbelieve in the miraculous. And if he's confronted with a miracle as an irrefutable fact, he would rather disbelieve his own senses than believe the fact. Now, how often do we do that? How often do we respond that way? When we see God's resurrection power at work, we see God just radically transform someone's life. We say, yeah, but just wait. Just wait. We'll see them come out. We'll see their true selves later. We see God bring about incredible, miraculous healing. We say, well, you know, there's got to be some other explanation. There's got to be some other way to explain this. We see God moving out boulders, clearing the way, tilling up the soil, bringing people who are spiritually dead to spiritual life, and we're skeptical. So, yeah, I don't know. The jury's still out. How often when we see God do an absolute miracle, do we think, yeah, but there's got to be some other reason for this. But the same power that God demonstrated in raising Jesus from the dead is at work even today, drawing people to himself, transforming lives, reconciling relationships, healing diseases, advancing his kingdom. We're so quick to excuse away what God is doing. If you're visiting with us this morning and and maybe... You've been out of church for a while. I want you to know there's nobody here who's judging you. There's nobody who's saying, oh, where have you been? But what we do want you to know is that this risen Christ who conquered death and hell and the grave is extending to you not only the offer of total forgiveness, but he's offering to you a brand new life with new affections and new desires, and new confidences, and new allegiances, and new loyalties, and a new faith. He's inviting you into a restored relationship with Himself. The resurrection is proof that Jesus' sacrifice was was enough. It's also proof that life doesn't have to be this endless turmoil of, of despair and hopelessness followed by inescapable death. There is reason this morning for confidence and optimism. And it's not in our own abilities. There is cause for celebration. And it's not because of what we can accomplish. It's not because of human ingenuity. The resurrection is evidence that God will restore all that's broken in Christ. All sorrow, disappointment, fear, defeat, they've been swallowed up in victory. The victory the angel describes so clearly in three pointed words. He has risen.
Let's pray.